0: Welcome to Tramlines, a podcast from Agri. I'm your host, Tony Smith, putting your questions to the experts. In this episode, I'm talking to Amy Watkins, Sustainability Project Manager with Agri. A key area of her work has been setting up net zero projects. Today, we're going to look into net zero, what it means for growers and why we should be paying some close attention as to how this could help potentially with farm income. So, good morning, Amy.
1: Good morning, Tony.
0: Good morning. And it's great to have you back on Tramlines again and uh, really looking forward to this discussion uh, today. So, if we can, let's start with, you know, understanding what is the carbon market that's been talked about so much in the farming press. What actually is it?
1: So, the carbon markets isn't something that's new. It's been around for a long time, since the early 2000s. Um, And it's really broken down into two key areas. We've got the regulated carbon market, which is where the large financial companies trade, um, and that's highly regulated. Um, So the prices for carbon on that area are quite high. We also have the voluntary carbon market space, which is where all of the newer additions have been coming out more recently, and where landowners are really getting excited because that's covering areas such as woodland, for example, And also more recently, soil carbon. So the voluntary market is still very much evolving. We have some development, particularly around woodland. Soil carbon still, we don't know an awful lot about. Um, But it's not very regulated, the voluntary market. Hence, the prices are slightly lower um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty there. So those are the two main carbon markets. And ultimately, what happens on these carbon markets is that landowners sell their credits, which is the equivalent to one tonne of carbon dioxide, to companies that would like to offset their own emissions, particularly in the voluntary space, um, so that they can help them to achieve net zero, essentially, by offsetting the emissions that they're putting out into the atmosphere.
0: Right. Okay. And, you know, has this actually started? Is the is this currency in this carbon market? Has it started to be exchanged? Um, are, are people already buying into it, or is it still a little bit, you know, should I say it, up in the air?
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of reluctancy at the moment, quite quite rightly, and hesitancy around carbon markets, particularly around soil carbon, as I mentioned, because we're still awaiting on a lot more detail in that area. Um, Interestingly, at the Oxford Farming Conference earlier this year, there was a potential market value put on carbon markets of £1.7 billion a year uh, for UK land-based carbon credits. So, there is huge potential for farmers and landowners to earn money around carbon, but at the moment, there's people kind of questioning whether it's the right move to make, particularly with the the changes in the industry at the moment with the loss of BPS. It could be a new income stream for people, but what does that look like? What do you have to do to earn that money is still quite uncertain. Um, And the carbon markets are starting to set some direction on how farmers might get paid for that. For example, we have a model where Um, you are paid based on outcomes, so that's around measuring soil carbon. Um, And the other area is around being paid for the practices that you're undertaking and the approaches you're taking on farms. So whether that be around, for example, moving towards direct drilling, using cover crops, reducing your nitrogen fertilisers, and all those practices together are a more carbon-friendly way of farming. So whether it be outcome-based or practice-based, there are two different models that are accredited on the market. Um, And the Soil Carbon Code, which is being developed in the UK at the moment, is really focusing on that outcome based approach to to carbon markets.
0: Sure. And and I'm sure you're going to get asked the questions when you have your your open days uh, later this year. Uh, That question being from farmers, you know, okay, you talk about one point seven billion pounds worth of value in the UK. But what could that mean for a, a farmer per hectare? Any idea? I mean, I'm not asking you to fix that price, just any, any you know, any idea?
1: Well, there's, there's, there's lots and lots of figures being chucked around at the moment, of course. Um, so the, the, the price really put on carbon at the moment in the voluntary market is around 20 to 25 pounds a tonne. That is set to go up. Um, and there was a lot of talk at COP last year about is that going to increase? Are we going to expect higher prices for our carbon? And it will, I think that's, it's set that it will almost double. But that is dependent on us getting some standardisation around how we measure that. Um, so there is quite an opportunity for farmers to earn money, and how much per hectare? Uh, there again, lots of figures being chucked around there, but we're averaging about two tons a hectare per year. So you could look at it as a really good opportunity to be earning money, um, but that's so interchangeable at the moment i think it's changing one year to the next and a lot of people are looking at it thinking do i wait till the prices go up slightly um or do i kind of jump on that opportunity now
0: so yeah sure but uh i guess let's remember as we've heard in many of the other uh podcasts here on tramlines that the the value to the farm anyway in terms of this improvement in managing uh, towards net zero, there is that significant benefit anyway. So it's good to start moving in that direction, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite common. Everybody seems to be saying that what what you do for carbon is also good for your bottom line. So when we talk about particularly things like nitrogen being around 65% of the average arable farmer's greenhouse gas emissions, obviously there's a huge cost to nitrogen as well at the moment so if you're doing as much as you can to increase your nitrogen use efficiency and reduce how much nitrogen you're putting onto the crop but still maintaining that yield and that crop quality then of course you're going to be helping both your carbon score but also your bottom line Um, and that's probably one of the biggest talks at the moment is how we can increase and improve nitrogen use efficiency whether that be through the use of using inhibitors as an example, or just simply cutting our nitrogen, which is probably the easiest option. People are saying that's just cut nitrogen, but of course you still need that yield to um, calibrate for that reduction in carbon as well. And interestingly, we've been doing a lot of work with ADAS on the N0 project, looking at just how much of an impact you can have by taking some of these approaches. Um, And comparing, for example, a 20 kilograms a hectare reduction in your nitrogen inputs to say using a nitric- nitrification inhibitor. And actually using a nitrification inhibitor can reduce your carbon emissions by 2% more than if you were just using, um, cutting your nitrogen by 20 kilograms a hectare. So there's some great impacts that we can have by slightly changing these approaches and maintaining yield at the same time, as opposed to just simply cutting our nitrogen
0: input. And with the price of fertiliser at the moment, you know, that's that's a really important issue right now, isn't it? Um, Just you mentioned about the soil quite a bit. Can you just clarify for us all? What is the soil carbon code?
1: Okay, so the soil carbon code is something that is being developed at the moment. Um, It's probably more familiar to people is what we call the woodland carbon code so using that as an example of what we're aiming towards the woodland carbon code has set a protocol for how we quantify how much carbon a woodland is storing and because we have that there's so much hype around tree planting because we understand how much carbon a tree sequesters for example now on the other hand we have the soil carbon code which is being developed at the moment and we're being told that it's going to become available next year and simply, it consists of a set of protocols that allows farmers to quantify and verify their reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and also soil carbon capture. And this will really be outcome-based rather than practice-based. So focusing on how you measure the carbon in your soil, setting standards for things such as the depth you should be analysing at the time of year, for example, what sort of strategy you should be employing across the farm, whether you should be doing it by every field, certain hectarage. Um, that's what that code is set to outline, hopefully for us next year.
0: Right. OK, so you, you've talked about um, nitrogen in terms of uh, moving towards net zero, also the value of looking after your soils, that that is absolutely key. Um, and you've talked about anaerobic and aerobic conditions and the contribution of that. What, what else can a farmer and a grower think about in terms of heading towards net zero, which is also going to have a benefit for the farm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And one of the other key pillars that the NFU have actually set out, because they've set three key pillars out in terms of cutting our greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the first ones is around fuel. So whether that be reducing our use of fossil fuels, um, whether it be by reducing our operations, but also looking at alternative sources, so more renewable sources of energy. So looking at it simply, you could be looking at your operations as an example, um, how many passes you're taking across the field in a growing season. Can you look to reduce that, And hence why there's a lot of um, pressure around and discussion around going towards direct drilling, not just for reducing our soil disturbance, but also for reducing passes in the field, but also looking at the other side of things. So for example, some people in wet areas, of the country will be doing a lot of grain drying and using fossil fuel sources, for for example, to um, dry their grain. Looking at alternative sources such as biomass heat as an example could be something where you could be reducing your emissions there. Of course, these things do have high investment costs um, and capital costs associated with them, but these are things that are likely to be encouraged more and more as a way of reducing our fossil fuel reliance
0: as well in the future. So that all makes perfect sense, Amy. And you've talked a lot about the soils uh, and then looking into the distance, and hopefully not that far away, you've talked about the value per hectare of the ability of that soil to absorb carbon. What what can kind a of farmer start to think about, start doing that's going to make that hectare of land more valuable when it comes to uh, it, it's, its carbon value?
1: Yeah, so I mean, when we talk about net zero, we of course break it down into emissions and also sequestration. So looking at the sequestration, sequestration side of things then, um, it's ways of improving soil carbon. We understand we can plant trees and plant hedgerows and maintain hedgerows, but what can we actually do to increase and improve our soil carbon levels? Again, there's lots of figures around this in terms of different practices and the impact they have, Um, and it is stated of course that by increasing your soil organic matter by 0.1%, you are going to sequester around 8.9 tonnes of CO2 per hectare. There are different things that you can be doing that will have variations in impacts, so the largest impact, of course, will be around your land use, so, for example, introducing lays into the rotation, which are going to increase your soil carbon long term. And that can actually have up to 1.9 tonne a hectare a year in in terms of carbon sequestration. Applying organic matter as well is probably one of the other large areas where you can be introducing carbon into the soil and also increasing soil biology. So if that's probably the second option, the second best option in terms of improving soil carbon. Other areas, of course, cultivation changes. So reducing um, our reliance on ploughing, for example, moving towards direct drilling, reducing our disturbance in the soil profile, which is going to be releasing carbon. Um, It's quite unknown how much that actually releases. There's a lot of different figures depending on soil types, depending on rainfall, for example, but there's of course going to be an impact on reducing our reliance on cultivations. And the final one really around cover cropping, which has got a lot of hype at the moment in terms of increasing soil carbon. It's not quite as impactful as applying organic matter, but there's an awful lot more benefits to cover cropping than just soil carbon, of course. We have things like, like reducing um, soil erosion, uh, retaining nutrients in the soil over winter and keeping that, those roots in the soil all year round to improve soil nutrient cycling. So there's a lot of different things we can be doing to increase soil organic carbon. Um, it's quite a long, a slow-term changing thing, so it takes a while for us to see any differences in the soil profile. Um, But it's ultimately back to that whole sustainable farming approach.
0: Yeah, and as we've heard on other podcasts uh, on tramlines around organic matter, it's not always easy for all farmers to be able to influence the uh, soil organic matter because of the types of soils they're farming on, maybe the the systems they're farming within the area of the country. So how, how do we know, how can we benchmark where we are right now in terms of what our soil can do on our farm in order to see what we can influence. And and where, and how do we know what we can influence? Where do we get that advice? So from the farmer's perspective, where can they start?
1: I think the simplest place to start with all of this um, is around adding soil organic matter testing to your regular soil analysis that you're doing every five years on the soil. Soil organic matter can provide so much um, information around not just soil health, soil carbon sequestration, But it's also we're also being pushed in that direction by government incentives. So the sustainable farming incentive, for example, is really encouraging us to take soil organic matter analysis and improve that over time. So that is probably the simplest starting point to have a look and track your soil organic matter over time. And of course, the optimum for that will vary on your soil type, as you quite rightly said. So a sandy soil is going to have a lower optimum soil organic matter level to a clay soil, for example. So more recently, there is something that we've been looking at, trying to benchmark with your soil type and your soil organic matter levels together to look at the potential change depending on the soil type that you are on. And that's something that we're looking at with our soil resilience strategy as an example. If you wanted to go into more detail, there is the option to follow set guidelines that are out there at the moment. They're not as classified as the soil carbon code will be. But, for example, the FAO guidelines that are stating how we can measure soil carbon. And that's using a more stratified approach to looking at carbon. So not just looking at the standard soil depth um, of sampling that you're doing for your P and Ks um, and pH, but looking more down to that 30 centimetres depth, but also stratifying it. So, of course, if you're direct drilling, for example, compared to ploughing, you're going to get quite an accumulation of soil carbon in the top couple of inches, as opposed to down at 30 centimetres. So now people are starting to look at a stratified approach. So looking at how that carbon varies in the top 0 to 10 centimetres, for example, compared to down to 20 to 30 centimetres. And that gives them an idea of how that soil carbon is going throughout the profile. Um, and actually, if you're a direct drilling, for example, you do want to be measuring that lower depth than if you're ploughing.
0: What else can a farmer be thinking about on their farm holistically in terms of aiming towards net zero? Are there any other elements uh, that we we should be just keeping in mind at this time?
1: Um, So we've obviously talked about nitrogen being a big one. I think a lot of it is around that sustainable farming approach. And of course, lots of livestock are getting a lot of pressure from reaching net zero and, you know, methane emissions from cattle, for example. At the end of the day, they do form a crucial part of a sustainable and integrated system. So going back to the traditional system that we used to have is probably going to be the most carbon friendly way. One thing I do like to point out to people, though, um, around carbon is not to get too focused on that one particular element of sustainable farming. There's an awful lot more that we've got to think about than just carbon. We've got, obviously, water quality and biodiversity and, of course, productivity at the end of the day. And one of the probably key points that highlights this in a nutshell is around your straw management as an example and residue management so people of course think that by incorporating their straw um, in the soil at at the end of the year that's going to increase your soil organic matter levels of course but down to that biological system that's happening in the soil that's going to be breaking down that straw and respiring just like any human would who is eating food for example And of course that's going to be releasing carbon dioxide emissions. So the one thing I do point out is we work in a biological system. It's going to be hard for us to reach net zero. Of course, we have to work towards that as a um, a UK wide goal and a global goal, Um, but we do work in a biological system. So one year you might be slightly more than another year, but that's because of the biological nature of the soil that we work with. So there's a lot we can be focusing on. Um, around carbon but also looking at biodiversity impacts as well focusing on soil health and what you're doing for soil is going to be good carbon and therefore good for your bottom line
0: so you've talked a lot about that link between what's good for the environment but also that it's also good for the farm's bottom line in terms of that real you know sustainability and that's really important isn't it so what top tips would you like our listeners today to take away uh, from this podcast amy
1: I think we've all got to start somewhere um, everybody's getting very excited about carbon markets and the financial value behind carbon and quite rightly so. I think there is going to be something in the future where we will be able to earn money from that. It is quite soon still, we are still waiting on a lot of information, but don't let that hold you back in terms of starting somewhere. Um, it's really good to know where you're starting from and Everybody says when they've made changes, the biggest regret they have is not collecting data at the very start of the process. So that part that data is essential and crucial um, collecting data for things like your soil organic matter levels, your fuel consumption for different operations, your nitrogen inputs for the crop are really key points to understand where we start from a carbon perspective and also sustainability.
0: Uh, Thank you, Amy, for your insight and thoughts today on on how we can really benefit now and in the future by increasing our focus on moving towards being net zero. Do have a listen to our other podcasts here on Tramlines that have a focus on soil health, regen agriculture and the Green Horizons initiative. That's it for this podcast, but do tune in again as we meet the experts throughout the season, exploring the many immediate and longer-term questions for growers and farmers in the UK. If you have any questions that you'd like us to ask the experts, email info at agri.co.uk. See you next time.